What is up, guys? And welcome to Montreal Madness with your host, Tony Montreal. So the word greatness, at least in terms of uh, the world of sports, uh, can be easily defined as individuals who possess a natural ability to be better than all others. Now, I think it's easy for us fans and experts to say, you know, who the great players are of their respective sports. I mean, in the NFL, you have guys like Tom Brady, Drew Brees, Julio Jones, Aaron Donald, and they're regarded as, you know, great players. And there really is no um, debate or dispute about that. I mean, you as, you know, even a fan, a casual fan can easily pinpoint who the great players are. Now, when we're talking about the greatest of all time, now that becomes a little bit more murky, actually a lot murky. Um, you know, there are just so many factors into defining who the greatest of all time is in their respective sport. I mean, you got you got to go through things like, you know, what era did they play in? You know, how their sport evolved over time, you know, um, just there's just so many factors when you go into defining um, the greatest of all time in that particular sport. So if you guys haven't already heard, there's this documentary that just came out in ESPN. It's called The Last Dance, and it just showcases the uh, 1998 Chicago Bulls and their final championship run and everything that led to that run. Um, and by the way, that documentary is just so, so good. It's beautifully produced, and it's created in a unique way just to tell the whole story of that team and how it evolved um, into the whole chaos that ensued with the front office and everything. And just as a casual basketball fan as I am, I just find myself so glued to that documentary. It, like I said, it is just it just so um, beautifully produced. Um, it's well created, and just like I said, as a casual basketball fan as I am, you know, I just find myself glued watching that show. So if you haven't already, um, give it a watch. It's on ESPN. Um, they show two new episodes every Sunday at nine o'clock, and you can always watch the uh, previous episodes uh, on the ESPN app. But with this documentary, it's just added more fuel to the fire and the whole Michael Jordan versus LeBron James uh, goat debate. Now, before this documentary even existed, I've always been on the side of Michael Jordan being the greatest of all time. Um, just through watching his old games on YouTube, you know, hearing experts, you know, even looking up stats myself. I mean, I've always just found myself as, you know, being an MJ supporter on, in the whole goat debate. But with this documentary... I mean, it just shows without a shadow of a doubt who the GOAT is. And it's got to be Michael Jeffrey Jordan. And the reason why I believe that, you know, besides for all the insane stats and numbers he put up, and uh, we'll get to that later on, but the reason why I believe that he's the greatest of all time is simply the fact that he became the ultimate team player. Now, Jordan, he wasn't always like that. Uh, early on in his career, you know, he had this mindset of unless... I put up 40 to 50 points a night. Our team has no chance of winning. And I don't think it was so much of him being selfish. It was just the fact that he knew if uh, he didn't score those types of points or put up those types of numbers, um, his team wasn't simply good enough to win. And you got to understand this first. When he first came uh, onto the Bulls, uh, the Bulls were not that good uh, uh, to be nice about it. They were just downright awful. And they developed this losing mentality to where if they are even down, you know, by 10 points or so, uh, going into the fourth quarter, they would just chalk it up as an L and move on to the next game. 
Jordan didn't believe that. He hated that mentality. You know, he thought that as long as he was on the floor, they had a chance to win. Now, he instilled that into his teammates. And his teammates quickly found out that as long as we have MJ, we have a chance. So, in that aspect, you know, he did prove to his teammates that, you know, losing was unacceptable by any cost and that they were in every game as long as Jordan was on the floor. So, like I said, Jordan took that upon himself um, to, you know, make sure that, you know, if he got those 40 to 50 point games, they were going to win. But when it came to crunch time and it came to the playoffs, you know, he couldn't do it all by himself. You know, when you have teams like the 86 Celtics, you know, you had uh, five Hall of Famers on that team and playing the bad boy Pistons in the uh, late uh, 80s, early 90s, he couldn't do it all by himself. And I dare you to name me one athlete in professional sports um, playing an organized team sport, uh, one player that could do it all by himself without any help. You just, you don't have that. And it just drives me crazy when I see um, fans and experts from the other side of this debate where, you know, oh, LeBron James, you know, he had no help at all. You know, he had to do it all by himself, blah, blah, blah. Well, guess what? In his three championships... He had guys like Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, Kyrie Irving, and Kevin Love. All really good to great players in their own in their own um, perspective. So don't give me that crap where LeBron didn't have any help. You know, if it wasn't for them, he'd have zero championships by now. So, you know, when you're talking about organized team sports, you can't do it all on your own. You have to have help, at least some s- sort of support uh, surrounding you. And once MJ found that out, he matured, he developed, and he grew into that ultimate team player, which, by the way, made his he made his teammates so much better than what they really are. You know, I know people say he had the best number two player to ever play the game in Scottie Pippen, but Michael Jordan made Scottie Pippen uh, who he is today. You know, if it wasn't for Jordan, I don't think none of us would even know who Scottie Pippen is today, or at least we wouldn't be talking about him at all. Um, you know, he made Scottie who he is and who he was, and he just made every player who was on the floor better with him being out there. That was the type of player uh, Michael Jordan was. Um, so once Phil Jackson came in and replaced Doug Collins, um, he didn't like Phil Jackson, to say the least. I mean, he admitted that, you know, he hated him. Because um, with that triangle offense that Phil um, implemented, it took the ball out of MJ's hands. And that irked him. Um, because he was just so used to being the focal point of everything and having the ball in his hands every offensive possession um, that, you know, he thought that that way of playing was, you know, um, just not good. Um, he didn't think that that style of offense, you know, you could win, but he later found out that, you know, you can take the pressure off of himself, rely on his teammates surrounding him, you know, to where if he was getting double or triple covered, you know, pass the ball off and, you know, trust your teammates to make the shot and to where they can't put all that pressure on you. And when you do get, you know, single isolation or even double covered, he knew that he was talented enough. He can still make those types of plays and to play that way if he really needed to. But he didn't have to put all that pressure on himself. And once he learned that, well, as the saying goes, the rest is history, folks. Because he won six championships. Not only that, but he three-peated 
twice in the 90s. Uh, that is just simply unheard of. So yeah, besides for that, I believe there are five criteria that you have to discuss in order to debate who the greatest of all time is. And that is accomplishments, longevity, winning, statistics and analytics, and the eye test. So let's start with accomplishments, shall we? So if you compare Michael Jordan's and LeBron James's accomplishments side by side, it's not even close, guys. I mean, MJ has five MVPs compared to LeBron's four. Uh, Michael has six finals MVPs, which is a record compared to LeBron's three. MJ has a whopping 10 scoring titles, which is another record compared to LeBron's measly one. Uh, Michael also holds the uh, record for nine NBA all-defensive teams compared to LeBron's six. Um, LeBron does have more all-star game appearances with 16 compared to MJ's 14. And Michael has one defensive title and LeBron has zero. A big old fat donut. And Michael Jordan also has 10 NBA records, which is probably the record for most records. <laughs> so he has 41 points per game in the finals. That's what he averaged. He averaged a career uh, best 30.1 points per game. He averaged uh, 33.4 points per game in the playoffs. Uh, like I said, 10 scoring titles, uh, 7 consecutive scoring titles, uh, most points in a playoff game of 63 against the Celtics in 86, um, most field goals attempted in the playoffs of 4,497. Uh, he also holds the record for most free throws made in the playoffs with 1,463. And he had 866 games, um, consecutive games, with 10 or more points made. And he did all that. In just 13 seasons, guys, 13, that's it. Um, like, that's simply flat out insane. Um, that's the only way I can describe it right there. Like, holy crap. Um, now, speaking of seasons, LeBron James, um, I believe, has the check mark next to the uh, longevity category. Um, not only has he played in more seasons... Um, he's had more uh, peak seasons, if you if you might say. Um, he's played in. Uh, he has 16 peak years, and he's still going. And MJ only had roughly 10 peak seasons. Um, now, as far as durability is concerned, if you want to dive deeper into the longevity category, uh, Michael played at least 80 games 11 times compared to LeBron James's uh, two seasons where where he at least played 80 games. Um, so Michael was more durable than LeBron James. However, LeBron James, besides for last year, really never got injured. Um, so he, you know, was very durable, never got injured. Um, so I would definitely chalk up the longevity category to LeBron James. So moving on to the winning category. And again, Jordan just blows James out of the water. I mean, not only is MJ 6-0 in the NBA Finals, he has a 24 and 11 overall record in finals games. He is 2 and 0 in the Olympics, and he's 1 and 0 in the NCAA championship game. Compare that to LeBron James. LeBron is 3 and 6 in the finals with an overall record of 18 and 31 in finals games. He got swept twice, and he also lost um, in five games twice. Um, now I will give LeBron this: he did make it to eight consecutive finals appearances, nine overall. That's probably something we won't see again. I mean that is that is that is incredible. It's outstanding. However, you don't get the championship trophy or that championship ring just by being there. You got to win it. And Michael Jordan, you know, he did it 
nine times. He's 9-0 when all the chips are on the line. Just simply put, in a world of imperfections, Michael Jordan is perfect when it comes to winning a championship series or a championship game. Um, now, I know there's the, the whole argument where you have LeBron James supporters saying, oh, well, MJ, you know, he faced, you know, lesser competition than LeBron, than LeBron did. Oh, really? Here's a little statistic for you. When MJ faced his opponent in the finals, they averaged 61.2 wins in the regular season. When LeBron James made it to the finals, his opponents averaged only 60.8 wins in the finals. So there, that's fake news. Not only that, Michael's road to the championship series was tougher than LeBron's. He had to face a Celtics team which had five future Hall of Famers on it. He had to face the Detroit Pistons. He had to face Patrick Ewing and the Knicks, a Shaq-led Magic team, and Reggie Miller and the Pacers. And that was year in and year out, the competition MJ faced. And LeBron's gateway to the finals was just the Celtics led by Paul Pierce, Ray Allen, and Kevin Garnett. Other than that, LeBron's road to the finals was so easy as a cupcake walk. In fact, that uh, Eastern Conference back then was known as the Leastern Conference. That's how bad it was. Um, year in and year out, the eighth seed in the East had a losing record in the regular season. So there, that's an automatic win um, for the number one seed, which LeBron James was more often than not. Um, it just it just blows my mind to see people make that argument. Um, you know, seven out of the nine years LeBron was in the finals. Again, like I said earlier in the show, he had Dwayne Wade, who, by the way, won a championship even before LeBron came to the Heat. He had Chris Bosh, who was a great player um, within himself with the Raptors before he came to the Heat. Kyrie Irving, Kyrie Irving, arguably the best point guard in the last few years. And then you had a great big man in Kevin Love. Um, and it's just, oh, that just argument just irks me to no end. Like, come on, guys. Like, stop with it already. You know, I don't want to hear it anymore. Like I said, I just listed right there, um, you know, all the competition that MJ had to face compared to LeBron. It's just not even fair. And, you know, I know LeBron had this round table discussion where he declared himself the greatest of all time when he beat um, the super team uh, Golden State Warriors down 3-1. to one. And I will say this again. That was incredible. It was um, miraculous. Um, you know, he took that team upon himself and willed that team um, down 3-1 to one to win that championship. That was probably and will be LeBron's greatest feat as a basketball, basketball player. And rightfully so. I mean, it was really good. However... Let me ask you guys this. Is it better to beat the powerhouse just one time? Or is it better to be the powerhouse over a 10-year span? In my book, it is so much harder to be the powerhouse, especially for, like I said, a 10-year span, than it is to beat um, one juggernaut team one time. I mean, not only did Michael Jordan win six finals, he did it by winning it three times twice. I mean, that's just simply unheard of, having a three-peat championship run twice in one decade. That will never happen again, guys. I just want you guys to know that. It will never happen again. I mean, have that kind of pressure on you, night in and night out, and have just that target on your back. To where teams, you know, if they only win one game out of the year, they want to beat you. 
I mean, the best team, not only of that decade, probably ever in the history of basketball. And, you know, Michael Jordan and the Bulls did it time after time again, three-peated twice. It is just something that you'll never see again. And not only did Michael Jordan win constantly and was perfect in a championship series, he single-handedly kept guys from winning a ring. He kept guys like Patrick Ewing, Carl Malone, Charles, Charles Barkley, John Stockton. I mean, he kept all those guys from not winning a championship. And all those guys I mentioned were not scrubs. They were freaking great. And he kept them single-handedly from winning a ring. I mean, that is just remarkable. Um, also, if you want to talk about uh, tough, playing against tougher competition, in Michael Jordan's career, he faced 7 out of the 10 all-time scoring leaders. He faced 9 out of the 10 all-time block leaders. He faced 7 out of the 10 all-time assist leaders. And he also faced 8 out of the 10 all-time steal leaders. Tell me again, Michael Jordan didn't face tough competition. Like, just shut up, will you? Like, come on. That's just, it's just fake news. It's not true. So if all that being said, I have MJ easily um, beating LeBron in the winning category. Now, when looking at statistics and analytics, this one becomes way more tougher to judge. Uh, simply put, these two guys were the best to ever play the game on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, now, before we begin here, I'm going to give all my stats on a per-game basis rather than a cumulative total, uh, just for the simple fact that um, Michael Jordan did play in four less years than LeBron James has, so I feel like it wouldn't be fair um, to give um, a, you know, a really objective analysis on this category by doing a cumulative total. So, with that being said, uh, MJ averaged 30.1 points per game over his career, then LeBron's 27.1. Uh, James has more assists and more rebounds per game, both averaging 7.4. Meanwhile, MJ averaged 5.3 assists per game and 6.2 rebounds per game. Uh, Jordan, um, he did have more steals per game at 2.3 a game rather than LeBron's 1.6. Uh, Jordan has a better free throw percentage at 83.5 compared to LeBron's 73.5. MJ also committed less turnovers per game at 2.7 compared to LeBron's 3.5. Um, now let's get into field goal percentage. Um, James had a, um, a slightly higher field goal percentage at 50.4 compared to uh, Jordan's 49.7. But let's dive into that a little deeper. So, as we all know, in today's league, it's way easier to drive the paint than it was back when Michael played. Um, just rules were different back then. You know, you can get um, away with a lot more stuff if you're a defender back when um, Jordan uh, played in his career. Um, so, here we go. LeBron James, he took one out of every three shots within the paint. Um, that's, that's by far his... Um, biggest percentage of shots taken during his career has been from zero to three feet. Um, so of those shots, he makes 73% uh, of those shots of the time, which, hey, is pretty good. But let's be real here. They're pretty easy. They're dunks, layups, and putbacks. It's not that hard to do, especially when you're a super freak athlete like LeBron James. You don't make those shots more often than not. But outside of three feet, um, he's only making... 37.9% of his shots outside of three feet. Now, if we get to that a little deeper in the playoffs, that number dips from 37.9 to 35. 
Now, if we get into crunch time and um, it's late in the game and they're either up or down by two possessions, that number drops again to only 31.5%. Those are not good numbers. Now, compare that to Michael Jordan's final year in the NBA with the Washington Wizards. He averaged 40% uh, field goal percentage outside of three feet. That was a time when he was a shell of himself. He was definitely out of his prime. And like I said, this was his last year in the league. LeBron James's best field goal percentage outside of three feet in a season was still only at 39.5%. Like, that is just not good. Like, if you're to be regarded as the greatest of all time, you got to be able to make some shots outside of the paint. And... Right there just goes to show you that LeBron James just was not that good of a shooter outside the paint. Um, and if you want to be considered the greatest of all time, you've got to um, be able to shoot the ball, uh, make that jump shot outside of three feet. Uh, LeBron James hasn't done that in his career. He hasn't proved that. Now let's go on to player efficiency rating. Michael Jordan has led the league seven times in PER compared to LeBron James' six. Michael has had um, a, to a top three PER 10 times compared to LeBron James's nine. And over their career, Michael Jordan is first of all time with a 27.9 uh, PER um, overall rating. And the playoffs, that number bumps up to 28.6, which is first all time. Compare that to LeBron's, he has a 27.5 PER in the regular season, which is second all time. And he has a 28.3 PER in the playoffs, which is third all time. And here's another statistic for you. Out of the 100 highest game scores, MJ has 19 out of those 100. LeBron James only has three. Now let me throw out one crazy stat for you guys. So I am going to list 11 players here um, that will include LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Kevin uh, Steph Curry, sorry, Shaquille O'Neal, Kobe Bryant, Larry Bird, Allen Iverson, Tracy McGrady, James Harden, Dwayne Wade, and Dr. J. All 11 of those guys are either in the Hall of Fame or will be in the Hall of Fame eventually. I think we can all agree on that. So with that being said, Michael Jordan had, 30, had more seasons of 30 or more points and at least a 50% shooting percentage than all 11 of those guys combined. That right there just shows the utter dominance and the pure greatness that was Michael Jordan. Right there in one statistic alone. It just shows to you how great of a basketball player MJ was. So if all that being said, I have a check mark next to Michael Jordan in the statistics and analytics category. So last but not least, you have the eye test. Now I know some people will think of more of this as um, opinion-based than it is objective and factual. However, if you take your LeBron James glasses off or your Michael Jordan glasses off, I believe you can have an objective viewpoint when judging the eye test. So let's start with clutchness. Clutchness can be defined in basketball with taking a shot with five seconds to go or less to either tie the game or to put your team ahead in the fourth quarter or overtime. Now, LeBron James has taken 94 of those shots over the course of his career. Now, I feel like, you know, that is a good enough volume of shots to judge how good of a player he was in the clutch. So, of those 94 shots he's taken, 
He's only made 19 of those. Good enough for a measly 20% field goal percentage with five seconds or less to go in the fourth quarter or overtime. That's simply not good enough. Now you look at MJ on the other hand. He has taken 50 shots with five seconds or less to go or less to go in the fourth quarter or overtime to either tie or win the game. He has made 25 of those shots, right at 50%. That's the flip of a coin, whether he will make the shot or not. I would rather take that player who has a 50% chance of making the game-winning or tying shot than the guy who's a 20%. And right there just goes to show you that Michael Jordan is far and way more clutch than LeBron James ever has been. So moving on from clutchness, let's look at the defensive side of the ball. You know, Jordan, when on the court, always gave 110%. He never walked back to play defense. He never jogged back after making a dunk or a layup or what have you. You know, he was always sprinting back uh, to play defense and to help his teammates out. LeBron James, over the course of his career, has always, you know, taken a quote-unquote rest while on the court after making a shot or whatever. Um, and when you're in discussion of greatest of all time, um, that just does not show you um, how much he cared about playing defense. Um, you know, I don't want to hear the, the fact that, you know, he was just taking a rest. No, when you're having this discussion, you can't be just walking or jogging back um, to the other side of the floor to play defense. You know, that is just bullcrap. Um, that just shows that just shows you that his heart wasn't in the game on the defensive side of the ball. You know, he left his teammates out the dry. You know, they were essentially um, playing the penalty kill in a five-on-four. You know, in hockey terms. Um, you know, that's just I, I I just don't get why you know you have people out there who's saying he's a great defender whenever half of the time he's just either jogging or walking back to play defense. It just it doesn't make any sense. Um, so now let's move on to, uh, uh, the personality on the court. Michael Jordan just had this tenacity about him, you know, that he can get punched in the face. He can get knocked down and tackled while driving the paint. And he would always get up and always still give 110%. LeBron James, he's known as a whiner. He's known as crybaby James for a reason. Every time a foul doesn't go his way, he's always bitching and complaining to the refs. Not only that... For a guy who's six foot eight, 250, 260 pounds, he's one of the biggest floppers in the NBA for crying out loud. I mean, I don't know how many times I've seen on highlights, on videos, even watching a game myself, where, you know, he'll just get touched or, you know, he'll just get barely bumped and he'll fall down to the ground and flop. Hey, LeBron, this isn't soccer. This is basketball. You don't flop in this league, especially if you want to be known as the greatest of all time. You just don't do that. So um, let's move on to three-point shooting now. So Michael Jordan played in a league where, you know, you just didn't take a lot of three-point shots. You know, he averaged 33% from the three-point line, which was right at league average, and he only averaged two shots a game from the three-point line. Um, LeBron James actually doubled that. He takes around six to seven shots from the three-point line a game, and he makes them 34% of the time. And that's actually below the league average. Uh, the league average is at around 35.5%. So he's about a percentage and a half short of just the league average. And you just, you know, you combine all that with the eye test and everything. And, you know, it just, I believe that Michael Jordan, when you just look at, at, at them two on the court, 
you know, MJ has the edge in the eye test over LeBron. So if you combine all these categories that I mentioned, um, you know, accomplishments, winning, statistics and analytics, longevity, and the eye test, it just goes to show you that Michael Jeffrey Jordan was the greatest basketball player to ever live. Now, this isn't a knock on LeBron James. He is probably the second greatest basketball player to ever live. He is the best basketball player in the modern era. Um, so this isn't, like I said, a knock on LeBron James. He is a very, very great and talented basketball player in his own right. However, this just this just goes to show you how much better Michael Jordan was compared to everybody else who's ever played the game. So LeBron fans, don't take this as a knock on him. LeBron James is such a good player. Um, like I said, he's probably the second greatest basketball player to ever play the game. But Michael Jordan is just in another category on his own. And if I want to build my team around one player, one player alone, it's got to be Michael Jordan, especially for all the things I just mentioned. It's just got to be MJ. So speaking of greatness, since the 1969 NFL draft, when the Steelers selected Mean Joe Green with the number one overall pick, the Pittsburgh Steelers have been regarded as one of the greatest organizations in the NFL to date. I mean, in the 1970s, you had that dynasty team with the still curtain defense, Terry Bradshaw, Chuck Knoll, and then in the 90s, you have guys like Kevin Green, Rod Woodson, Jerome Bettis. And then in the early 2000s, you know, you had Ben Roethlisberger, Heinz Ward, Troy Polamalu, James Harrison, and the list goes on and on. But in the most recent years um, for the Pittsburgh Steelers, they've been anything but great. They've been downright mediocre, to be in fact. And that is in large due to the part of head coach Mike Tomlin. Now, Mike Tomlin's first four years in the league were highly successful. I mean, he went to two Super Bowls in 2008 and 2010, won Super Bowl 43, and made the playoffs three out of those four years and won their division three out of the four years. Um, he was really successful early on. However, the argument can be made that it wasn't his team that he was coaching. You know, he had all of Bill Cowher's players still playing under him. I mean, he never had to draft the franchise quarterback. He already had that with Ben Roethlisberger. He already had a top three to top five defense. You know, that was basically Dick LeBeau's defense back then. And he just had everything put together for him where he was just along for the ride. He really didn't have to do much or implement everything. He had all the resources at his disposal to him. And the only thing he had to do was make sure that they didn't screw up. Um, so with that being said, these past eight years, you, know, you go look back to 2012. And the reason why I referenced 2012 is that's basically whenever all of Bill Cowher's players either left or retired. And it was truly Mike Tomlin's team. Um, besides for Ben Roethlisberger, he had drafted all of his players for basically every position. And at that point, it was, in fact, Mike Tomlin's team. So since 2012, the Steelers have only made the playoffs four times and have a three and four playoff record in the past eight years. And when you have a great organization as the Pittsburgh Steelers are, that is simply unacceptable. Especially when you have one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play the game in Ben Roethlisberger. And Mike Tomlin simply has not done the job to put the Steelers back on top as one of the greatest organizations in the NFL where they need to be. Now, I'm not saying Mike Tomlin's a bad coach by any means, because you don't win over 130 regular season games in only a 13-year span as Mike Tomlin has and not be a good head coach, because he is. However, though, 
When you have guys at your disposal, especially on offense, like Big Ben, Antonio Brown, Le'Veon Bell, uh, Martavis Bryant, Heath Miller, Mike Wallace, Centennial Holmes, and to not win a championship, let alone just make it to the Super Bowl, is downright unacceptable. Especially when you're talking about the Pittsburgh Steelers, who have been known for the past 50 years as being one of the greatest organizations in the NFL. So although I don't think Mike Tomlin is a bad coach, he is, in fact, the most overrated coach in the NFL, in my opinion. Case in point, in the 2017 NFL season, the Steelers go 13-3 in the regular season, and Mike Tomlin had his best regular season to date. Despite going 13-3, they only had the number two seed in the AFC and were forced to play the Jacksonville Jaguars in the divisional round. Well, as we all know, they end up losing that game, what was it, 42-39, and were knocked out of the playoffs. However, though, one of Mike Tomlin's biggest critiques of his coaching career has been he hasn't been able to get his teams up to play the lesser competition in the league. So in week two of that year, the Steelers played the Chicago Bears, led by quarterback Mike Lennon, who, if you're any type of a football fan, you know Mike Lennon isn't that great of a quarterback. Uh, he hasn't accomplished anything in the league. He's a pedestrian player. He's just simply not that good. However, the Steelers ended up losing to the Bears that game in overtime and essentially cost them the number one overall seed in the AFC. Because if the Steelers end up winning that game, they go 14-2 despite losing to New England late in the regular season um, in December at Heinz Field, which, by the way, the Steelers won that game if not for the worst officiating call in recent memory. I mean, Jesse James caught that ball, made a football move, and crossed the goal line with the ball secured in his hands. Um, but however, that's not the way it went. The Steelers ended up losing that game. But they proved not only to themselves, but to the whole world, that they were able to beat New England despite losing Ryan Shazier to a career-threatening injury and everything that went on um, during, that, during that game. Um, they just proved that they could beat them. And I truly believe... To this day, if the Steelers would have beat Chicago back in Week 2, they get the number one overall seed, they face the Tennessee Titans instead of the Jacksonville Jaguars in the divisional round, and then they go back to play the New England Patriots in the AFC Championship game at Heinz Field, and they end up winning that game and making it to the Super Bowl. But that's not what happened, and essentially, Mike Tomlin cost that team a chance at the Super Bowl, frankly, because he cannot get his teams to play against the weaker competition. Case in point, he has an overall record of 19 and 22 against teams that are under 500 since 2012. So I just don't understand why with the talent that Mike Tomlin has had at his disposal that he just simply cannot beat the teams that he should beat. Because in the NFL, you only play 16 games in in a season. Well, now in, you know, as of next year, they'll be playing 17 games. But despite that, though, you know, you only have 16 games to work with. Every single game matters. And especially when you are a playoff team and you know you're going to make the playoffs, you know, beating those types of teams um, go a long way in a Super Bowl run. You know, being the, the highest seed in your respective conference is such a big deal. You know, Not only do you get home field advantage throughout the entire playoffs, but you get that crucial first round bye. You know, it helps your team rest up. If you have any players that are injured, they have an extra week to recuperate and everything. 
you know, just having that number one overall seed means so much. I mean, just ask the Patriots. The reason why they've been such a dynasty for the past 18 to 19 years is because they have the formula for making it to, for making it to the Super Bowl. Um, you know, you have to go through New England. They get that first round by. They stay relatively healthy because they get that extra week to recuperate. They get that extra week to game plan and everything. Um, so it just it just baffles me as the reason why Mike Tomlin has just always had this inability to not get his teams up to play against the subpar teams of the NFL. Um, another example, you can look at 2018, whenever they went 9-6-1 and missed the playoffs. Um, you know, they fell short at the beginning of the year. I think they were at right at around 500, when it, like in week 5 or 6. And then they had a good 5 or 6 game stretch where they ended up being 7-3-1 and one and had a stronghold um, to control their future um, and make the playoffs. But they lost a few games late in the year, including one against Oakland. And Oakland in 2018 went 4-12. and But Mike Tomlin still found a way to blow that game and ultimately miss the playoffs that year because of that one game alone. So if you remember correctly, during that game, earlier in the first quarter, Big Ben goes down with an injury. So in comes backup Joshua Dobbs. Um, he has a, a difficult time, you know, orchestrating that offense, um, and they're losing at halftime. However, Big Ben says that he was ready to come back. Mike Tomlin refused to put him in because he knew that they were playing the Raiders, who had only won three games at that point um, late in the year. He thought they could win without Ben Roethlisberger. Well, here comes the fourth quarter. They're still behind. Then he puts Big Ben back into the game, and they still end up losing. I mean, they they had a chance to win that game. You just put Ben Roethlisberger back in the game. I mean, apparently he was healthy enough to come back late in the fourth quarter when you thought, you know, they desperately needed him. So why couldn't you put him back in the uh, beginning of the second half? That is all on him. They lose that game and they end up missing the playoffs solely because of Mike Tomlin. And he's done that throughout his whole coaching tenure. And, you know, I know he's a good coach. Like I said earlier, you don't win 130 games in the regular season being a bad coach. But, you know, just just his whole coaching philosophy, um, the way he views the game in general, um, the Steelers just have not and will not uh, win another championship with Mike Tomlin as head coach. And he proves that time after time again. And I think once his contract is up by next year, Kevin Colbert and the Steelers organization need to move on from Mike Tomlin and find his successor. Now, me being the diehard Steeler fan as I am, I hope I'm dead wrong on this. You know, I hope Mike Tomlin can prove me wrong and he can prove all of his pundits wrong and lead the Steelers to another Super Bowl run in the next year or two. But with me being the realist as I am, I just don't see that happening. So staying on the topic of the NFL, the league just implemented a new playoff format for this year. Each respective conference will add an additional wildcard spot with a total of 14 teams making it into the NFL playoffs, as well as only the number one seeds being rewarded with a playoff bye. Now, I absolutely love 
this new playoff format that the NFL implemented. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot more competitive football, especially late in the year on Week 17. Uh, no longer are you going to have uh, the top-tier teams resting their starters or at least their star players. They're all going to be fighting for that number one seed because that first-round bye is so crucial to a Super Bowl run. And on the flip side of that, you're going to see a lot more competitive games as well just because you're going to see a 7-9 or 8-8 eight eight team potentially make the playoffs more often. So it's just going to make a lot of games down the stretch of the regular season, especially in Week 17, uh, be that much more critical. So I absolutely in favor of this playoff format, this new one. However, though, for the love of God, I wish they would just reseed the teams. You know, if you win your division at 7-9 or 8-8 eight eight or 9-7, you know, I'm all in for you making the playoffs because you won your division. However, you should not be able to host a playoff game against a team that went 10 and 6, 11 and 5, and you know made the wild card just because they were playing in a tough division. Uh, no longer should that happen. If you have a great regular season but just happen to be in a tough division, you should not have to travel uh, to a team that won the division but wound up winning it at it with an 8-8 eight and eight or 9-7 and seven record just because they were in a weak division. So if they can change that, they can change the seedings from best record to worst record, I think that would be the perfect uh, playoff scenario. So with that being said, I'm going to give you my opinion on who I think the top 14 teams are in the league as of right now. At number 14, I have the Houston Texans. Now look guys, I was really debating myself whether or not they should even deserve to be on this list. But the reason why they do is solely because of Deshaun Watson. I mean, outside of Patrick Mahomes, Watson is the best young quarterback in the league today. However, though, Bill O'Brien has single-handedly just flip-flopped this roster up and down. Um, I mean, he traded away the best wide receiver in the league right now in DeAndre Hopkins to the Arizona Cardinals. I mean, that move just still blows my mind to this day. I still can't believe it. Um, you know, when you have a young quarterback like Deshaun Watson, you want to build a team around him, which means you want to stack him up with some pretty good talent on the outside. So why you would give up arguably the best wide receiver uh, uh, in today's league is just beyond me. Um, so right now, Deshaun Watson has nobody to throw the ball to. He has pedestrian offensive line, a pedestrian running game to work with, and he has an average at-best defense. Um, so the Houston Texans are very lucky. They um, I haven't put them on this list. And the reason why they are is solely because of Deshaun Watson's talent. So speaking of the Arizona Cardinals, I have them at number 13. Um, they have Kyler Murray, who was a phenomenon last year in his rookie year, really took the league by storm. Um, he put up some really good numbers as a rookie. Now he has the aforementioned DeAndre Hopkins to throw to. They drafted the best linebacker in the draft last week with uh, Isaiah Simmons out of Clemson. Um, this team greatly improved. Their offense is going to thrive under uh, Cliff Klingsbury again this year. Um, I believe they even make the playoffs this year as the number seven seed in the NFC. So I have them at number 13 on my list. At number 12, I've got the Dallas Cowboys. Now look, they got a really good roster on paper, but time after time again, they prove that whenever they hit the field, that they're just an average football team for whatever reason why. Um, I know they got rid of Jason Garrett. Um, they have a lot of talent on the offensive side of the ball with guys like Dak Prescott, Ezekiel Elliott, Amari Cooper. And now they just drafted the best wide receiver in the 2020 uh, draft class in C.D. Lamb. Um, so they do look good on paper again for another year. We'll see uh, how they do um, under head coach, new head coach, Mike McCarthy. Um, we'll just see how it all plays out. 
But right now, I have them the number 12th uh, best team in the NFL. At number 11, I have the Tennessee Titans. Now look, this team lives and dies by how well Derrick Henry does. Uh, he was an enormous factor in their wins over the New England Patriots and the no number one seeded Baltimore Ravens last year. Um, you know, Ryan Tannehill has really come around in uh, Tennessee. Um, he's turned himself into a really good game manager. I just don't see him being that quarterback that can lead his team from a comp uh, come from behind victory. Uh, he's just not that guy. However, if they if they get a lead, you know, um, early in the fourth quarter, they can just pound the rock with Derrick Henry. Um, they have a good enough defense to shut opposing offenses down or at least slow them down. Um, so as of right now, I have the Tennessee Titans at number 11. At number 10, I have the Philadelphia Eagles. Now, this is one of the most improved teams uh, in the NFL, in my opinion, this year. Uh, they traded for Darius Slay from the Detroit Lions. Uh, he immensely improves that secondary. Um, they got a good defensive front with guys like Fletcher Cox on the defensive line. And just the biggest question mark going into this season is how well can Carson Wentz stay healthy? Um, if they can, uh, that offensive line can keep Carson Wentz upright and he can stay healthy for a full season, um, there's no telling how far this team, team can go in the season um, and even in the playoffs. So it just all rides on the line on how well Carson Wentz can stay healthy. At number nine, I have the Pittsburgh Steelers. And much like the Eagles, this season solely relies on how well Big Ben can stay healthy. Because this defense is one of the best in the league, if not the best defense in the league. Uh, they create a lot of sacks, they force a lot of turnovers, and quite frankly, I haven't seen a Steeler defense like this since the late 2000s with the likes of Troy Polamalu and James Harrison and those guys, um, which just goes to show you how well they played on defense last year. Um... So with that being said, as long as Juju Smith-Schuster, he can have a bounce back year. Um, Deontay Johnson showed a lot of signs of encouragement last year. Uh, James Washington had some spurts where he shined. Um, so if they can bring that wide receiver corpse together, you know, they added Eric Ebron in the offseason, probably the best tight end in free agency. He's a, just another big target for Big Ben to throw to. Um, and that running game, you know, if they can get James Conner going, um, Benny Snell, you know, he showed um, a lot of good uh, signs last year of being a decent running back. So, yeah, just that everything comes together, and if Big Ben and his elbow can hold up, they're going to be really competitive um, for the 2020 season. So that's why I have them at number nine. At number eight is the Green Bay Packers. Now, I know there's a lot of scrutiny coming out of Green Bay right now with them drafting quarterback Jordan Love in the first round instead of getting Aaron Rodgers another weapon to work with on offense. Um, now, look, guys, uh, despite them you know, going that route, you know, looking more toward the future than winning right now, uh, Aaron Rodgers still has weapons to work with. You know, he's got Devontae Adams at the wide receiver position. He's got Aaron Jones at running back. Um, they still have a top 10 defense from last year. So look, uh, the end is not near um, for you Packer fans in Green Bay. Um, you know, as long as you have Aaron Rodgers on the field, you have a chance to win every game. So I know they didn't improve much from last year. Um, you know, they still made it to the NFC Championship game. Um, they've got to uh, figure out a way to beat, you know, teams like the 49ers who just steamrolled them not only in the regular season, but in that NFC Championship game as well. Um, so, you know, there is a question mark in that regards. However, this is still a really good competitive football team. Um, I think they'll do just fine. Um, I still have them winning the NFC North. Um, so I think things are still going to be good in Green Bay this year. Um, we'll just have to see um, how competitive they are um, when it comes in the playoffs. At number seven, I have the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And uh, just look at this team right now. 
You got Tom Brady, a quarterback, you know, although he's 43 years old, he's still better than half the quarterbacks in the league right now. Um, until he proves me otherwise, you know, he can still be a top quarterback in this league despite being 43 years of age. But just look at the weapons surrounding him right now. You know, they were able to convince Rob Rob Gronkowski to come out of retirement and play again with uh, Brady. Um, they have Mike Evans and Chris Godwin on the outside. They also have O.G. Howard at, at tight end. Um, they got a very talented running back in uh, Ronald Jones. Um, and then on defense, you know, they really went all in on defense in this draft. You know, they got Antoine Winfield Jr., for example, um, safety out of Minnesota. He should shore up the back end. Um, this team is just stacked with talent right now. And there is no reason why, especially with head coach Bruce Arians, the offensive genius that he is, that he get that he can't get this team to at least a playoff position, if not win the NFC South. Um, you know, so watch out for Tampa Bay this year. Um, they are going to be a force to be reckoned with. Um, the only question mark on this team is that defense, but I felt like they addressed a lot of their needs in the draft. Um, so we'll just have to see how it plays out. But, um, you know, this NFC South is going to be tough this year. Um, you know, New Orleans has, has a run for their money in that division. So we'll just see how this plays out with, you know, with Tom Brady, you know, in a new uniform and a new team. You know, I know that's going to look weird for a lot of us fans out there to see. Um, but get, we'll just have to watch um, and see what happens. But I really do believe this is going to be a very, very, very talented team come week one. And um, I actually have them not winning, winning the division, but I do have them making the wild card. And, you know, we'll just see how it plays out. At number six, I have the Seattle Seahawks. Now, I was really questioning myself whether to put them this high on my list, but then I remembered they have Russell Wilson. They have the best mobile quarterback in the league today. Um, you know, not only can he run around, scramble, and, you know, actually pick up first downs using his legs, he's the best at throwing the ball on the run. Um, you know, I know you can argue that Patrick Mahomes is that guy, but Russell Wilson has been doing it for so long now. He's an experienced veteran quarterback. Um, he's been in any, every, in any situation you can think of. Um, he's just that type of guy. Um, so along with that, you have Tyler Lockett, you have DK Metcalf, who, by the way, was the best rookie wide receiver from last year. I mean, the guy is a super freak athlete. Um, you know, he's big at six foot four. You know, he's 220, 230 pounds, but he runs like a four, a 4.5 40. Um, you know, the guy is just a super freak athlete. Um, and they got loaded at the tight end position. You know, you have Will Disley, Luke Wilson, and then they added Greg Olson in the offseason. Um, the offensive line is still a little bit of a question mark. You know, Russell Wilson probably gets sacked um, more often than he should. Um, but that defense is still strong. You know, you guys have, you know, they have guys like Bobby Wagner and KJ right in the middle. Um, so I think they're going to be just fine. But they're playing in arguably the toughest division this year. I mean, not only do you got the San Francisco 49ers who went to the Super Bowl last year, you got an emerging Arizona Cardinals team. And don't sleep on the LA Rams either. I mean, just two years ago, they went to the Super Bowl and they still have the same nucleus of players still playing today on that roster. So don't sleep on the Rams just yet. And despite all of that, I do believe the Seattle Seahawks are still going to be a force to be reckoned with in the NFC West. And speaking of the 49ers, I have them at number five on my list. And this team 
really doesn't have a weakness on their roster. Um, I'm going to start on their offense. You know, you obviously have Jimmy Garoppolo. You have the best tight end of football and George Kittle. Um, you have one of the best offensive lines in the league. You got a trio of running backs who can put up 100 yards, any one of them, any game. Um, their only weakness as of right now where I can find is at the wide receiver uh, position. You know, they lost Emmanuel, Sand- Emmanuel Sanders um, um, to free agency to the Saints. Um, I know they have Debo Samuel and some other guys. But, you know, other than that, uh, they really don't have a weakness. You know, on, on defense, um, they are one of the best front seven teams in the league. Um, they still have guys on the back end like Richard Sherman who can still do it at his age. Um so as of right now, I don't see any fall off on the 49ers. Um, so they are still going to be a contender um, for that NFC title. At number four, and probably my favorite team to watch this upcoming year, is the Buffalo Bills. You know, no longer do they have to go through the juggernaut of Tom Brady and the New England Patriots in that division. You know, in my opinion, this is their division to lose now. Um, you know, just look at the roster. Um, they got Stephon Diggs for the Minnesota Vikings. They have John Brown. They have Cole Beasley, who is probably the most underrated slot receiver in the league. They have some very good, young, and talented tight ends. Their whole entire offensive line is still intact from last year. They got a stud at running back in Devin Singletary. He's going to play a much bigger role now, now that uh, Frank Gore has left and retired. Um, and then on defense, you know, they addressed their defensive end needs in the draft with uh, draft pick A.J. Epineza out of Iowa. Very good edge rusher. And then they probably have one of the best secondaries in the league. You guys, you get, they have guys like Trey White and Micah Hyde. And then they picked up Josh Norman in free agency. Now, I know the past couple years for Norman hasn't been his greatest years, to say the least. However, when he shined in Carolina, he had Sean McDermott coaching him. So I just think he's going to pick up where he left off in Carolina with Sean McDermott. Now, I don't think he's going to play that big of a role in the team. Um, however, though, he's going to come in um, at key time, at key times and key moments during games. He's going to play more of a depth role. But I still feel like um, playing under Sean McDermott, um, he's going to find that touch again. But no, this season for the Bills is going to be really fun to watch. Um, So I'm going to be very excited to see how they play. They are actually my dark horse, like I said earlier, to make it to the uh, AFC Championship game and to make it to the Super Bowl. Um, So we'll see how it plays out. Um, But I have the Buffalo Bills as my number four team. At number three, you have the Baltimore Ravens. Um, you know, Lamar Jackson, he took the league by storm last year. You know, he proved that he's not just a running back playing the quarterback position. You know, he can sling the ball and throw it deep down the field and throw it accurately. And then you have a lot of skilled guys surrounding him. You know, you have a lot of great tight ends um, he, that he works with. You know, they added J.K. Dobbins, running back out of Ohio State in the draft. Uh, they brought in Clayus Campbell from the Jags in free agency. Um, and that defense, it's still as strong as ever. And, you know, when you have Jim Harbaugh as your head coach, um, you know, it's going to be very, very tough to beat this Baltimore Ravens team. Um, so that's why I have them at number three. And number two, I have the New Orleans Saints. And, you know, I know they had a fluke year last year where they um, lost Drew Brees for a couple games. However, Teddy Bridgewater stepped right in. Um, they didn't lose a beat, but they ended up losing in the wild card round uh, to the Minnesota Vikings, which I just didn't see that happen at all. Um, but despite all that, though, they still have a very talented roster. 
you obviously have Drew Brees. Um, he's and he's in the twilight of his career, um, but he can still he still proves that he can still sling the ball around. He can sling it accurately. Um, he's still smart with the football. Doesn't commit a lot of turnovers at all. And then you have you know guys obviously like Michael Thomas and Alvin Kamara. They brought in Emmanuel Sanders, another weapon uh, for Drew Brees to throw the ball to. Their offensive line is still very good at pass protecting. And then on defense, um, you know. They, you know, struggled a little bit last year, but then they showed that they have signs where, you know, they can be dominant. Um, so that's the only question mark going into the season is the Saints defense, as it usually is in uh, New Orleans. Um, but with that offense, you know, they're a team that can easily score 30 to 40 points a game. Now, they did add Jameis Winston in the offseason as sort of an insurance policy after letting Teddy Bridgewater go um, in case Drew Brees does fall uh, to injury again. Um but they're but hopefully for uh, New Orleans Saints fans out there, they're not going to have to rely on Jameis Winston at all during next season. Um, so New Orleans fans, you know, keep your guys' hopes up. You know, you guys have all the talent in the world that you ever need on a team. Um, hopefully, the Saints can put it all together and uh, make one one more final Super Bowl run for uh, uh, future Hall of Famer Drew Brees. And at number one on my list, I have the reigning defending Super Bowl champions from last year, the Kansas City Chiefs. And, you know, you only need two words to describe this team, and that is Patrick Mahomes. Uh, this guy is just in another category, and as, as far as elite quarterbacks are concerned in the NFL today, um, he is going to be the face of the NFL in years to come. Um, the Chiefs, you know, they just got a diamond in the rough um, with selecting Patrick Mahomes, you know, in the uh, 15th pick uh, in the draft a few years ago. Um, plus, you have the offensive genius with Andy Reid as head coach. Um, you know, you got a lot of weapons with Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill. Um, on defense, you know, that's their only, um, weak spot. Their, uh, their weakest link on that chain, um, in that secondary, especially, uh, however, though, um, as long as they can hold opposing offenses to probably under 25 points a game, um, the chiefs are almost guaranteed to put up 30 points a game. Um, so yeah, until you knock off the chiefs, they're going to be my, uh, my favorites for the super bowl and for the future years to come, uh, until some team can prove me otherwise. So there, those are my most biased opinions, guys. MJ is the GOAT, no question about it. Mike Tomlin is overrated, no question about it. And the Kansas City Chiefs are the number one team in the NFL, no question about it. And if you guys don't like it, well, too damn bad. This has been Montreal Madness with your host, Tony Montreal. Till next time, guys.